welcome to Navigating Change, the education podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here, as always, with Howard Tybal. Good morning, sir. Coming to you live from the Pacific Subduction Zone. Oh, my gosh. We just talked about yeah. that, didn't we? You see, you brought it up, and now it's all I can think about. Yeah, but you're, you're fine. You're fine at least for today. I'm fine for the next half hour. Uh, okay. And a, a very special guest, writer, speaker, teacher, and now we're thrilled to say, officially on his second appearance, friend of the show, Brian Alexander is back this week with us. Brian, welcome back to Navigating Change. Thanks for having me. Glad to hear you, and I'm glad to hear that you haven't been subducted down to the base alt yet. <laughs> that is, I, I love that that's going to become our new cultural norm, uh, to be subducted. I think so. Yes. I think so. <laughs> the 1990s were alien abduction, now the 2020s will be, will be subducted. subducted. <laughs> Geologically subducted. I can take it. We are going to be talking not about that today, but institutional envy. At least that's where we're going to start. Who knows where we're going to go? Before we dig in, learn more about our work in education at tybalink.com. You can subscribe to the show for free. Just click the blue button and we'll keep you updated as we post new shows. Our topic of discussion, institutional envy. How would would you like to kick this off? Well, I read a blog post that Brian had shared where he's referencing uh, a book, Richard DeBello's Revolution in Higher Education, a small band of innovators will make college accessible and affordable. And I think what I was most struck by is some of the key themes that you raised from a particular section of the book. The first of which being this idea that, and I'm using your words here, uh, but first, plans suck. Rather than a plan for action, a university strategic plan is often a substitute for it. And that so resonates with me, and it speaks so plainly, Brian, to I think one of the dilemmas that I continue to try and help schools pay attention to is rather than focusing on the development of something that looks good on paper, maybe satisfies your board, but is a guide for action. So when you think about this and in your work in higher higher ed, can you speak a little bit about this idea about the difference between a plan that's just in the shelf versus a plan for action? Sure. Um, but I'm mostly reporting on and reflecting on uh, Rich DeMillo's uh, formulation of this. Uh, in his recent book, Revolution in Higher Education, he argues that planning is, as you said, uh, more or less an expression of anxiety and less a uh, plan of action. It's something which describes aspirations and some degree of envy, but it's not a, it's not a battle plan. It doesn't usually describe uh, the opponents. It doesn't describe the terrain upon which a campus may act. And that's that's a serious problem. It's, it's in many ways an internal document, a kind of self-reflection at best. The dilemma I find, Brian, is if you, if you did a search and replace on almost any strategic plan and you put in different institution names, they almost all look the same. But the missing piece, as you're saying, is looking at the competition and understanding, like you said, the terrain. And as I as I ask myself, why why haven't they stepped out of that? My guess is it has a lot to do with most institutions haven't had to think about competition in that way. I think some people on campuses think about competition, but most of them haven't. It's not something that usually enters into, say, most faculty's minds. When they think of competition, they think of personal competition. You know, so-and-so and I are both vying for this grant or... Uh, you know, I want to beat out these people into this one coveted publication slot. But institutionally, uh, that's that's more difficult. The second reason is I think if you look at private education, up until 2008, private colleges and universities were doing pretty well. Uh, their endowments were uh, growing. Uh, right. their, uh, you know, the number of students applying kept increasing. Up until 2008 through 2010, I think they were feeling 
Yeah, pretty good. I mean, I've heard a lot of urban legends from provosts and presidents, but what they've heard from faculty in these institutions and what they what they've heard about uh, from students, you know, the occasional faculty member who tells a student, when you graduate, you're not going to have to be asked to give back as an alumnus because our endowment is too healthy. Things like that are relics of a different time. Uh, and then the public institutions, you know, we're in this awkward place where the total amount of money that states have given to publics has gone up. The per pupil uh, contribution has gone down. So that, you know, we're facing this problem of publics, which have for so long been able to be safeguarded by the public backstop and are, are now being thrust out uh, in many ways, and especially in, se- in several states, Pennsylvania, Alaska, Illinois, and Louisiana, into actively being uh, competing in the private sector. So that's, uh, I think for a lot of them, this is just a very, very new mindset. You know, and a relatively new push in higher ed that I've seen is looking under the covers or under the hood at academic programs and trying to engage, first understand, and then engage faculty in the question of profitability around academic programs. And you talk about the queen sacrifice. Could you talk about that? Uh, this is a metaphor that I, I crowdsourced, um, and uh, I wanted to use it to describe what happens when a campus cuts an academic program and faculty. And by faculty, I mean both adjuncts as well as tenure track and indeed tenured faculty. And I came up with the term queen sacrifice from chess, because this is where uh, a player makes a spectacularly dangerous move. They lose their most powerful piece, the queen, as a gambit to succeed and win the game. And I picked this because, at least putatively, faculty and academic programs are the queens of campus. That's the main purpose for being there. And so to cut them is to really, this isn't just cutting meat and bone. I mean, this is cutting off a limb. I mean, this is really drastic. And when I started observing this phenomenon happening, I've been tracking it about once a week. I've posted uh, on colleges and universities, primarily in the Northeast and the Midwest, which are cutting programs. And the programs they cut are largely in the humanities. And the faculty, along with staff that they lose, are, again, mostly in the humanities. And the argument is almost always the same. I mean, there's really a template here. The institution is facing an enrollment shortfall, and that is leading to financial problems. Sometimes they're separated out, so presumably there's another reason for finances being bad. But the two of them together are a double whammy, and they're not reversing. They're not able to get more money. They're not able to get more students. So they turn, and they're instead going to cut what they see as low-performing departments. And right. this is this is very shocking. This is not the way that most faculty think about things. I think this is a really important conversation, and business officers, our listeners, uh, deal with this every day to try and say, how do we engage in a broader conversation around looking at what makes up the totality of our revenue and expense? And I would say that I think you're absolutely right that at the surface, it's this conversation about these drivers, rising tuition, declining, for example, high school enrollment, need more for financial aid. And we are already to the bone administratively, whether they are or not. Mm-hmm. And we need to start looking at, you know, the one area we haven't looked is academics. But the schools that do this well, uh, I think they do it broader than just looking at low performing. I think the conversation that really makes it a balanced and appropriate conversation is when you say, first, we're going to understand what we have before we cut. And then what we're going to do is we're going to say, 
consistent with our mission, this is what we want to continue to invest in. Because my experience in higher education is that when times were good, we added master's programs. We added new disciplines. We brought in more faculty. And now that we're in a position where there's a bit, there's a contraction going on, it is very hard to undo that. So to me, it seems appropriate to say we have to look at under every stone, and that includes the academic side of the house. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yes and no. I do agree that this makes strategic sense. The reason I disagree with it is this is a very, very tricky thing to implement on the academic side. Uh, as I mentioned before, this is a way of thinking that faculty normally haven't been thinking. I mean, if you hire someone to teach Russian and the rush demand for Russian goes down, one way of thinking is, well, so what? This is a, a part of Western civilization that we value, that we should have. And even if the numbers are low, you know, we still need – it's important to have it. It's part of our reputation and it's part of the human record. We're doing our best. And it, it, it's, it's a step to get away from that. That's – that's the way we've been thinking for, for decades in higher education. So now we have to retract from that and say, well, maybe not. Maybe we shouldn't think about it that way. Maybe we you – know, it's part of the argument that we, not every institution has to be Harvard, right? Not every college, university, and right. academy has to cover every single branch of the curriculum. You very clearly can represent the academic perspective. You can very much relate to it as a – uh, as a professor, as somebody who's been through that process and getting to uh, that PhD level, where on the administrative side, many of us can't appreciate what it was to go through that. The dilemma I have found is you mention anything about looking at academic programs, even if you are being completely sincere and intending to understand the data, the perception of the academic side is you're only interest is cutting, and there is a high degree of skepticism and even cynicism or trust that administration will do the right thing for the institution in understanding the academic side, uh, sort of the financial implications and the, and the mission implications. And I think we have to go there. How do you go about looking at the academic side without raising faculty concerns? How do you go to, about that? Yeah, I think you have to take the objections seriously, which, which are actually deeper than, than I've outlined so far. And then you have to really give the context. Um, but by deeper, I mean, again, I'm, not all the targeted areas are in the humanities, but the humanities really do bear the brunt of these sacrifices. And one of the contexts for this is that there's a sense of the humanities overall are under threat, the academic humanities. I That's mean, right. The, the humanities fair. of life, you know, are doing great. We're making music, we're making movies, books, and all this. But um, so for a lot of humanists, there's this extra level of, of defensiveness, which is important. On top of that is is this, you know, we can go back to the famous problem of corporatization um, or professionalization of, of administration. One of the arguments you could say here is, well, faculty say, well, our students aren't demanding these courses. Well, that's their fault. They don't know enough yet. You know, that's why we have to have strong core curriculum requirements to make them take these things because it's good for them. You know, it's like spinach. Um, I mean, so in order to in order to address these, you have to take all of these comments seriously and say, you know, no. To an extent, we do have to think about students as consumers. That demand really matters. And here's why. We are facing this enormous, enormous pressure. Demographics is really driving a lot of this. And again, you know, I, I keep finding that these, that these 
sacrifices are happening and the places right. in the United States where enrollment is collapsed or where demographics are collapsing. And then you have to mention the, the finances, which have become extremely, extremely challenging. I mean, I have to tell you, know, you guys this, I and mean, this is obvious in many ways, but for a lot of faculty, their practice, they may have come up in an age in the 70s or 80s when finances are very, very, very different. I mean, you think about now the, the real huge sunk costs in physical plan, the sunk cost in what some campuses have with a very aging faculty where compensation is, is higher than it was historically, uh, higher especially with medical and insurance, other insurance costs. And that's, that's a serious problem that has to be addressed. Uh, I mean, that, com those, that double whammy of finance and demographics, those are new threats in many ways. And I think putting that to the faculty really makes a difference. And then the third is to say this is an existential issue. Uh, campus may close over this or may mutate into something so completely different that it's no longer the same institution. And I think when you're at that level and you can back it up with numbers, then I think faculty are maybe scared straight, uh, maybe more willing to think about this more practically, more strategically. To me, you are, you are framing a way to engage faculty through uh, – Unpacking the finances, really looking at the demographics and understanding truly not just the competition, but the nature of what's happening in the different parts of the country. And then the third one is existentially, is it possible that we're in a position where we're going to either have to close or merge or really cut a big portion of what we're doing? We're, we're victims of our success in higher education. We have mm. built you know, the world's leading higher education edifice by far. We have this huge and diverse you know, set of colleges, universities, academies, other organizations, which is terrific. And we've been very financially successful. We have built a lot of, you know, the total amount of money spent by states and the federal government is enormous. And you look at the physical plant of a lot of built, I mean, they look terrific, look splendid. And we don't look like we're on the edge of a precipice. We look exactly. very, very successful. And I think one of the problems of paying attention to Stanford and Harvard is that they're doing fine. I mean, they're That's not... Right. You know, they're, they're not challenged. And that's actually a problem when we have media coverage about them, which treats them as exemplars for higher education, which they're not. Um, you know, the, the, there's a recent book from Stanford's dean of students, which treats Stanford's undergrads as nominal undergrads for American higher education, which is just wrong. I mean, that's way off. Uh, so, you know, we have to look at other institutions and pay attention to the ones that are on the knife edge of survival or survival organ. I mean, mutation, one, one version of the queen's sacrifice is you slash a bunch of programs in the humanities, and then you shift some of that money to programs that appear to be more in demand. And those programs are inevitably professional. Uh, they, they might be in the allied health. They might be in, uh, in nursing. They might be in criminal um, or uh, you know, uh, justice programs. They may be in some technical fields. Okay, well, let's, if, we, if we have a liberal arts institution – and in 30 years, it becomes a professional school. That's an, that's an ontological shift. That it has become a different entity. It is, uh, it is not the liberal arts institution as it was. I, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in almost a cartoonish way because there are all kinds of shades and nuances here. But that's what we're really facing. No school wants to consider that they're in a dire strait. You know, you raised this before, this question of crisis. And I think that schools have to – the schools that make transformational change have created in many cases an artificial crisis because the truth is one – one school circumstance, if you put it into another school, the other school, and I'm not even talking about the elite schools, but if you took a high-priced 
liberal arts institution, private, and you took a circumstance of declining uh, enrollment, uh, you know, 10% in this upcoming next year. One school will treat that as a crisis. Another school will treat this as, you know what, let's figure out how we can modify the budget. And it has everything to do with the position of the leader, the board, uh, and the willingness to look at these issues and do something about it now versus waiting for the next set of leaders to deal with it. And that to me is the, it, it comes down to the individuals. It comes down to, you know, we talk about the campus leadership. We're talking about uh, a core group of of individuals who have the capacity to make tough choices or raise tough issues and for those that do, I think they can move the needle. For those that don't, I think they have their head in their sand, and they're going to end up um, risking not taking advantage of, of opportunities because they think, you know what, we'll just ride this. I mean, there's been a lot of riding this since 2008. My guess is a lot of faculty are still thinking, and rightfully so, we'll get through this. I've seen this before. This is no, you know, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. I've heard these dire predictions of our school being at risk of closing. It didn't happen. It's not going to happen this time. So I think there's a tremendous amount of denial that's still out there. And in some cases, maybe it's warranted. Well, I love this cultural discussion because I I just had lunch last week with a colleague at another uh, small uh, private institution who told me, I I never really understood this issue until uh, we had a meeting where marketing came into our department meeting and said, uh, it's time for you faculty members uh, to begin attending public and corporate education fairs to promote your own programs. And the next week, uh, the the academic dean came in uh, and said, it's time for you to start attending corporate education affairs to defend your own programs. And I think, I think that is a remarkable uh, uh, set of phrases there used, mm. one from marketing, one from academics, uh, that, that allows you to see the sort of threat that can be uh, sometimes falsely, but maybe quite intentionally manufactured in the institution to generate cultural movement. Wow, that's really powerful. That's very frightening. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a difficult thing, but I can also understand why faculty would see that as something that they've never had to do, which it, 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 it should, they shouldn't have to do. Well, it. and that's the thing. It's talking about a whole new set of skills and machinery. I mean, imagine if you're somebody who is who is teaching in an MBA program with a focusing on marketing, right? I mean, you are you are part of that sort of professional, ballooning professional uh, class of, of degrees that that is going to be fine at a career fair, right? If you are the, the head of a uh, neuroscience uh, department, Department and you're trying to defend, uh, you know, struggling uh, investment and struggling student body in the sciences. That's a really difficult thing to learn how to do. Yeah, but but doesn't it? But to, let's go back to this. Now, you know, and you wrote this in your blog post. You know, Demillo sees these groups as having strategic advantages at the moment. Students, new entrances, and peers they can compete successfully for campus resources. But ultimately, it's about differentiating ourselves. Finding a way to say, how is what we're doing worth looking at and exploring over our competition? So, so Brian, isn't on some level the development of that discipline of being able to advocate or defend or whatever you want to call it, isn't that a positive thing for a school to get better at? It is, but it's, again, it's a cultural shift. One of the reasons academics join an academic institution is to outsource a lot of strategy and maintenance to professionals. 
So, you know, you, you don't worry about fundraising. That's why you have a fundraising staff. You don't worry about student life. That's why you have residence life and so on. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, co-us on, um, on the firm, right? You know, you, you join this in order to reduce friction and reduce costs. Uh, and so only now are they at the point of having to you know, defend and explain, maybe even issue an apologia for what they're doing. But the other problem is a lot of faculty, and this is starting to change, haven't yet realized that social media exists. You know, that we, I think it was around the year 2000, another book came out lamenting the decline of the American public intellectual, right in time for a whole bunch of academics to take to the blogosphere and proclaim their thoughts about presidential elections or about evolution versus creationism or about the importance of mathematics and Indian history. I mean, we now have faculty in every discipline who use the web in order to advocate for their field and its importance. I mean, my alma mater, uh, University of Michigan, had inc has an incredibly important Middle Eastern scholar, Juan Cole, who has almost, almost lured away to Yale uh, simply because his blog was so important. And this is, a, this is a leading Middle Eastern studies scholar who is able to opine on Middle Eastern issues four or five times a day through his blog. I mean, it's a major, major figure. So he is doing a one-man show to defend Middle Eastern studies. Brilliant. You know, there's people like P.Z. Myers who are defending biology and science, uh, colleagues of mine in art history. I mean, it's, it's a, that's a wonderful field. And we have to recognize that, spend more time on it, embrace it more. I mean, I have a friend at Middlebury College who's a presidential election scholar. He's having a great year, unlike the rest of us. Um, <laughs> but his, his blog posts are terrific, where he's just analyzing debates in great detail, bringing his full professional expertise to bear. So we, we really have to remember that, that the, the ivory tower is less of a tower. The walls are a lot thinner right now. There are a lot of holes blasted. That's in right. I, I, I think that's a, a great message to end on, and I am going to use this. Culture is not a fly embedded in amber uh, mm. a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I'm putting that, that might on be the title of the podcast. I love uh, it. Yes, and and and, and t-shirts and and credit uh, Brian Alexander uh, and his expertise. This was a great conversation, Brian. Thank you so much. Where would you like people to uh, find you, learn more about you? Well, there's actually two places uh, on the same spot. So go to brianalexander.org, and then on there, take a look for the Future Trends Forum because that's where I'm interviewing people, bright people like Rich DeMello, to ask them questions about the future of education. Outstanding. We'll put links, all of those links, right in the show notes uh, at TeibelLink.com. Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening. Thank you, Brian, and thank you, as always, Howard Teibel, for your time and expertise as well, sir. You're welcome. On behalf of these two fantastic gentlemen, I'm Pete Wright, and we will catch you next week right here at Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel Inc. Mm -hmm.